Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. I'm Evan Lazar, joined as always by Alex Barr. Today is our Q&A edition of the program. So if you have Patriots questions, you know the drill, go ahead and fire away in the chat and we'll get to as many questions as we possibly can over the next hour or so. The Patriots are back on the practice field today, I believe. We are not out there, unfortunately, but we will be next Tuesday is the next session that is open to the media. And then mandatory mini camp is the following week, June 7th through June 9th. It's Hard to believe that we're already kind of at that part of the offseason already where we're into mandatory minicamp. And we're going to talk a lot about OTAs and what we saw on Monday and what we might think we might see over the next couple of weeks. And I wanted to start with the rookies uh, because I think that that's always a fun topic. And this time of year is the first glimpse that we get at the rookies for the Patriots. So we can just work our way on down here. But I, I actually want to start with Tyquan Thornton. I think what we saw out of Cole Strange is more or less what we expected. We'll get into Cole Strange here in a second, but I want to skip him and get into Tyquan Thornton. We talked about it a little bit in Tuesday's show when we recapped Monday's practice, but Thornton wasn't doing much in Monday's practice during team drills. I was told it's not injury-related. He just is coming along slowly, I guess is the only way that you can really describe it, or they're bringing him along slowly. I like the point that you made about how they didn't do that with Nikhil Harry and his rookie training camp and his rookie OTAs. And maybe they're trying to be a little bit better about the development of Tyquan Thornton. But what's your overall reaction, Alex, to the fact that they drafted this receiver 50th overall. Uh, He clearly has speed and things that bring uh, that he can bring to the table that would help the offense. And they're taking it slow with him, at least to start. Yeah, I, I, I like it. Again, it's just, you know, do the antithesis of what happened with Nikhil Harry. That's it's, it's true to an extent, of course, at the same time, right? They can't still be working him in in November. So we have to do a show today. I'm fine with it today. If we get to training camp and we're a week into training camp and the pads are on and he's still not taking part in team drills, then, yeah, then at that point, maybe you start to question what's up and you wonder what's wrong. So don't come after me and say, well, you said they should take it slow with him, right? Um, as of today, I think it's fine, but it's it, um, we don't have the whole picture. So it's tough to say that what they're doing is right or what they're doing is wrong because we don't really know what the ultimate plan is. Yeah, I do think it is an indication, though, about when they brought Nikhil Airy in, in 2019, they did not have the veteran receiver depth that they have now, right? And I think with Thornton, You look at Devontae Parker, although he's a different skill set, he's playing that outside X receiver role. And then also Nelson Aguilar can play that speed role that they probably have in mind for Tyquan Thornton. So I I look at this year for him, and we keep on going back to that 2017 Brandon Cook season because I think that's a a decent comp of how exactly they might see his route tree Thorntons that is long term. It would be similar to that. They also brought in Philip Dorsett that offseason, remember, or was it 2018 that they brought in Dorsett? And I kind of look at Dorsett and Thornton early on as that 30, 35 snaps being a percentage of snaps being the absolute max that he might play as a rookie. And I, I just look at those other guys that they have ahead of him in Parker and Aguilar, and I see a much different 
situation that he's getting dropped into than let's say Nikhil Harry, where they don't need to rush him on the field, where they have viable NFL talent to take the snaps early on in his career and they can ease him into it. One of the biggest mistakes I think the Patriots made with Nikhil, and we, we've talked about this a couple of times on the program when we talked about Nikhil, is putting him back out on the field after that injury in the first preseason game against the Lions. Remember, he gets hurt against the Lions, and the Patriots put him right back on the practice field. He played again that preseason. They put him right back in the game. Yeah, they put him right back in the game. And then he ends up starting the year on injured reserve and the whole thing sort of went off the rails at that point, right? It, it, right out of the gate, it was kind of a mess. So uh, hopefully this is a sign that it's nothing to do with Tyquan Thornton's ability, uh, but more as a sign that the Patriots just see their mistakes from before and have that ability now with those veteran receivers on the roster to ease him into it a little bit more. I also think if, if you want to play devil's advocate and be negative about it, I hate being negative about it, but if you want to be negative about it, he's thin, right? Like he's real thin. And, and they could also be thinking that he needs to pack on some serious weight, not 25 pounds, but maybe 10 pounds or so here uh, before he's going to be a full-time player for them or have a, a larger role for the Patriots. So if you're looking for a reason to be a little bit concerned about it, I, I think the only thing that we know so far to be concerned about it would be the weight. Uh, how concerned are you are you about his frame? Because this is similar. I, I mentioned this on Tuesday uh, when Mac was wearing fifty when he was a rookie. That jersey's for a linebacker, and it like clearly was swimming on him. Tyquan Thornton was wearing fifty one, another linebacker number jersey. It could have just been the jersey was four times too big for him, right? I mean, who knows? But he was thin. He he does have to add some weight. Even Kendra Bourne joking about it that he has to get bigger in order to take on more responsibility. And Bourne said that that's something he did too. And I think that's important to remember, you know, how concerned am I by it? Well, I don't know that I'd throw him the ball 120 times this year, Thornton. Yeah. Cause he doesn't have an NFL body yet to absorb some of these hits, but you know, you draft these guys with the, with the idea that, you know, you have a long-term plan. You're not just drafting them as they are in college players. You're going to develop them over four years and they're going to progress on all of that. And we've talked a lot about it with Mac that, that first off season, right? Year one into year two, when you, when players get to fully be in an NFL weight program an NFL training program, all of that, they really can round out physically. And I think that's more conversation with Thornton from year one to year two. I think if he stays at the size he's at, it could be an issue, right? He's going to have tough yeah. time absorbing hits, especially if he's going to run over the middle of the field, carry the ball after the catch, which is something that I think really opened his game up at Baylor last year and something I hope he continues to do in new England. But that being said, I don't think he'll be. What is it, 171 pounds? I don't think he'll be 171 pounds for his entire NFL career. They're going to get him in the weight room. They're going to jack him up a little bit. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned right now because I think there's a plan. We'll see in a year if he's any bigger or not. Like, if we come back next year, right, and and he's still listed at 171, he still looks the same, that's a, a, a big red flag. I don't think that will be the case. I find it hard to imagine that would be the case. But I, I, I think he can get through his rookie season – right now and then and then we worry more about the frame next year yeah i think a lot of times too people with f slight frame receivers worry about press coverage and aggressive coverage at the line of scrimmage you know getting off ams things like that my biggest concern with thornton's size is actually down the field and how he's able to finish through contact at the catch point as fast as he is and as dynamic of an athlete as he is in terms of his speed at the NFL, guys are going to be able to keep up with you more often than not. 
and you really do have to finish through a lot of contact a lot of time. You talked about over the middle, but even on deep balls down the field, there could be guys draped all over him. There could be guys also going for the football, and he's going to have to be able to have that strength and that that ability to fight through that contact and make the play on the football. That, that is, I think, where you start to worry. Things like him getting pushed off at the top of the route, right? Like, you know, getting kind of uh, out-physicaled, out-muscled at the catch point, at the break point. Uh, I would be wary of that right now with a guy like Taekwon Thornton. Okay, didn't see much of Thornton. We also didn't see much of Pierre Strong on Monday. I find that interesting because of how much we saw them run those outside zone concepts in practice. You think that he would be the perfect running back uh, for that type of scheme, but we didn't see much of him. Is this an indication maybe that they are looking at him as more of that receiving back? And we know how long it takes for that role to kind of, for you to secure yourself in that role and really take that role uh, by the horns. Ty Montgomery was getting a lot of run in that role with James White being limited. Maybe they look at it and say that Pierre Strong could potentially be your way. It's obviously very, very early to be talking about things like redshirt seasons and things like that. But uh, what would, what did you make of Pierre Strong also being a very uh, limited, uh, let's call him an observer, right? You know, he was kind of just watching at that point like Taekwon Thornton. Well, it's tough to make anything of it because pretty much all the rookies were observers except for Cole Strange and Jack Jones, right? So Kevin Harris actually got some carries though. Kevin that Harris, guy, yeah. That's that that's guy's massive. That guy is yeah. huge. Yeah. Yeah. I we we know how it is with running backs. And obviously I'm gonna be cautious here because last year we talked about Ramondre yeah. wasn't gonna play it's and they always redshirt these guys. Though, right. Like in, in our defense, like Ramondre played that first and second down role. You're just asked to carry the football. If they're asking Pierre Strong to play the James White role, that's a completely different mental task than just hit hole get up the field right you know i mean it's a much yeah. different type of thing yeah that's a good point i again it's one practice i i know we have to do the show again and i know we have to analyze it but it's just one practice you know we could go out there on tuesday and pierre strong yeah. touches the ball 70 times yeah. so i do think with some of these skill position players they are going to take their time and be patient and they've set themselves up where they can do that with some of these guys but I do think Pierre Strong's a guy they're going to need this year. I don't think Ty Montgomery can be that that full-time pass catching back. Even when James White was doing it at his peak, they would still, you know, rotate him at times with either Rex Burkhead or Brandon Bolden or whoever. So maybe yeah. that maybe it's Ramondre in that rotation. I don't know. But I, I do think they're going to need Pierre Strong to play at some point this year. So you hope by training camp he gets ramped up and ready to go. Yeah. All right. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting in your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. So that kicks us off here. I'm going to start to field some of these questions now. I think this first question is one that's been on my mind since we've been out at practice on Monday. Just look, these are voluntary workouts. And I always preface everything I say about this with that, that caveat. It's, it's voluntary. 
We don't know what's going on with Isaiah Wynn. We don't know if there's a family matter that he's attending to, or if there's something, if he just had a kid or like, you don't know, right? Like you just don't know what's going on in somebody's life that doesn't have, that has led to Isaiah Wynn not coming at least to practice on Monday or, and it reportedly hasn't shown up yet this off season to the facility. Do you see this as snowballing into a bigger issue for Isaiah Wynn and how much benefit of the doubt do you give him before you say, you know, after last year and all that kind of stuff, maybe it's time for Isaiah Wynn to show up. Yeah. I, I was a little surprised he wasn't there. You know, he's going into a contract year and last year he got off to that slow start. And I think part of it may have been, he kind of wasn't able to hit the ground running on like some other guys. And he's got to have a big year this year if he wants to get paid in New England or elsewhere. Right. So a lot of the times, even the guys who don't traditionally show up to these workouts and when didn't show up last year, they show up in contract years because it's, you know, essentially one big audition. It's one big job interview, all of that. You're trying to go out and get the bag the next year out. Maybe wins there for practice. And, it, you know, the second day where they're like you said, maybe there's a, a family matter or something like we don't know why yeah. he's there. But if he continues to be absent, uh, that is definitely something that's notable. That's something that stands out. I, I would characterize him as their most notable absence not be on the yeah I agree and I think that if you're Isaiah Wynn uh, we joked about this with the punters right and with Nick Folk also Quinn Nordeen last year had a big day in camp and uh, OTAs and then the next time we were out there there was Nick Folk right he was out there Ryan Allen did the same thing when Jake Bailey was drafted Bailey comes out we're all writing about all these booming punts and things you don't see that with the offensive lineman because we don't have the pads on yet. But I look at Justin Haran and and I see a player that has some potential, especially on the left side, to maybe be a starter for the Patriots this year. And if I'm Isaiah Wynn, I start to think about, well, if Haran has a good camp and he showed up from day one at OTAs and he's been working and doing all the things that they want me to do and doesn't make $10.4 million dollars, you start to wonder if the Patriots could actually pull the rug from Isaiah Wynn. And after his season last year, after he came into camp out of shape, after he started the season slow, uh, these are all the types of things that indicate to me that even if Isaiah Wynn comes in and training camp, he's in great shape. He has a good year. I don't think he's getting the bag from the Patriots. I I don't think Bill Belichick is going to be the one that's going to give him that extension or give him that deal that he wants in free agency. So Either way, I feel like this is the last year for Isaiah Wynn with the Pats, unless he has a horrible year and they get him at a massive discount and they go that direction with it. I think this is his last year regardless. So if I'm Wynn, this is more about putting the best tape out there in 2022 to get paid next offseason. Now, the issue with the trade thing for the Patriots, as much as they might look at it and say, we can get the same production out of Justin Haran, who we love, who's got great work ethic and great buy-in, I think the concern that you have with it is $10.4 million is a lot of money uh, for a team to take on, especially this time of year or in August. Well, not necessarily for if, if a team needs a starting left tackle, $10 million is very reasonable. It's average money for a starting tackle in the league. Right. So it's, if they feel that he is an average to above average starting tackle, then sure. It's, it's somewhat reasonable, but my more, my point is, is from a cap space perspective, teams at this point have probably spent most of their money that they're going to spend this off season. So bringing in a guy with that much money and it's, it all counts because it's guaranteed on the fifth year, right? It's not, it's not like you can break it up unless you're 
planning on extending him without even having him play it down for you yet, which I guess is a possibility. But more of what I'm getting at is if you're the Patriots, what's the better compensation, what you're going to get for my, for Isaiah win this summer or if Isaiah Wynn potentially goes out, has a good year, and signs a deal in free agency, the comp pick that you're going to get back next year for Isaiah Wynn, you could, if he goes out and has a really good year, you could be looking at a third or a fourth round comp pick. Are you going to get a third or a fourth round draft pick for Isaiah Wynn in 2023, in the 2023 draft right now? If they were to you know, shop him, if they were to call the other 31 teams and say, Isaiah Wynn's available. Is anybody parting with a third or a fourth round pick for Isaiah Wynn right now? I say no. Well, I don't know. Maybe you could swing it conditionally, right? If he plays X amount of snaps, it's a third X amount of snaps. It's a fourth X amount of snaps. It's a fifth, but it's a good point. You're right. Um, yeah, that 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 does factor into a trade too. That is something we need to think about the comp picks. But if they think him not being here, he's going to have a down season. Well, then maybe you're not going to get a third round comp pick. Maybe like, hey, this guy kind of doesn't have what it takes to be a starter. And yeah. then you, you, you get what you can get for him. Yeah. So last thing here on Isaiah, when I want to talk about, we saw Trent Brown working at left tackle for the first time since he's returned to the Patriots, basically the second stint with new England. And I, I wonder because Justin Huron, I would say his tape at left tackle was much better than his tape at right tackle. So if they are going to go in this direction where they might be thinking about moving on from win sooner rather than later, do you like the idea of Trent being on the left side or do you like the idea of Trent being on the right? I guess maybe it's more where you trust Justin Haran because I think you trust Trent at either spot. I, we know he can flip and, and do it well. So it's more, I guess, a question of where would you trust Justin Haran the most? Would you move Michael on when back out to tackle? Like which direction do they go in if they do actually do this? So, yeah, I think Michael on when a better through two seasons, right? We've basically seen a tackle at a season at tackle season at, at, at guard. And I yeah. think he might be a better tackle than guard, even though it's not his natural position. And I know people don't want to hear this and talk about the run. And I know you don't want to talk about the run, but the run's still going to be a big part of what they do. Right. Yeah. If you have Isaiah Wynn, Michael and Wenu, Chase and Hines out there, right? Let's say Chase and Hines becomes your right guard in that case. That's a lot of size. That's yeah. a lot of size. You're going to be able to run for miles behind that offensive line. So I like the, I, I, and even in pass blocking, like I just like the idea of having the biggest offensive line possible. I think in a league where defenses are getting smaller, even up front, if you can just bully, you know, yeah. other teams in the trenches, I think that that's a huge advantage. So I'd like to see Trent Brown on the left side, simply because I think it allows Onwenu to play right tackle, which I think is his best position. If they want to keep Onwenu at guard, I would leave, Trent Brown at right tackle then because you have those two guys next to each other, which I think, again, you go back to that size thing and running behind them. Um, and then, like you said, Justin Huron's a better left tackle anyway, so that works out. So if we're not moving Michael and Wenu, I, I think you put Trent Brown next to him. If you are willing to move him to right tackle, I think that's ultimately their best line. I don't know that they do it, though, because it's moving a lot of pieces. Yeah, I think Trent Brown at left tackle is probably their best bet just because you also have Cole Strange at left guard. So you have two guys that are relatively inexperienced starting at that point on the left side, which I don't act, I don't really like that that idea, especially on Mac Jones's blind side. I'd rather have the veteran over there and Trent Brown. And then I think you hope that with more reps in the summer that you can drill out of Justin Haran, whatever his issues are, with playing on the right, you know, it's, it's flipped, right? It's like trying to ask somebody here, here's a pencil, you're a righty, but you have to write with your left hand, right? So you have to learn a whole new 
sort of way of writing. Justin Huron's in a similar position, but if you give him, you know, I don't know, whatever, how many practice snaps you get over the course of six weeks of training camp in the preseason, all at right tackle, then maybe he's able to work those things out and fix those issues that he has playing on the right side. And if not, then like you said, you can still kick on Wenu to right tackle. Like you still have that option in your back pocket. So that's the way I would look at it. But I, I still think that we're a beat or two away uh, from really having a discussion about them moving on from Isaiah Wynn. We might be a little bit too premature yeah. on this one. Uh, no, we love this. We love this to speculate. Like you said, we, we have a show today. We got to talk about these things. Right. And, and that's uh, one thing that's definitely on everybody's mind, but let's, let's give it a pause and see what it's like. Uh, come actual training camp, especially with offensive linemen. All right, scheme questions with offense. So I like this question because we've talked about what we think that they might do schematically with their offense, but this is more about what they actually should do, you know, like what we actually think that is the better uh, suited for their personnel, and specifically for Mac Jones. It's hard to say that a spread system it isn't the better fit seeing that that's what he did at Alabama. And he had almost a Heisman trophy winning season in a national championship campaign. The interesting thing about the Shanahan scheme is yes, you have seen quarterbacks like Jimmy G like Jared Goff, who are more pocket style QBs, more touch throwers, not necessarily the big arm guys succeed relatively speaking in that type of system. But when you typically speak of zone schemes with bootleg action, seven step drops, things like that, moving pockets, you most of the time you talk about big arm quarterbacks, right? Guys that can go and make those movements and move that far back and then still be able to sling it down the field. I think it's why the Jets drafted Zach Wilson. It's why the, the Niners drafted Trey Lance, right? They're trying to get more right. velocity on the throwing uh, you know, from the quarterback. So it is interesting that if they do go the Shanahan direction, I'm not sure it is. It's nothing to do with his mobility, it's more about the way he throws the football and where he succeeds. I'm not necessarily sure it's the best fit for Mac compared to the spread, but I, I'm interested to hear uh, where you stand on this. It's it's so hard to get away from the idea of them just basically being uh, Alabama, right? And, and just copying that way of doing things because of how much success Mac had with it. I still think spread's a better fit for, for Mac and for the whole team, just the way their personnel are. They're Again, they're so deep. And the one thing about the Shanahan system, it really doesn't do a ton when it comes to depth, right? You're kind of just, yeah. your guys are who they are and you're rolling yeah. with that group. I, I I don't think it's the best option for them. I'd like to see them stay spread. Again, the Alabamification of the offense, all of that. I, I think if they go Shanahan, they're forcing it. I think they're overcorrecting to the problem of, uh, or, or at least a projected problem that the offense isn't modern enough. I, Which, by the way, I don't think is true. I think it was a, a, a talent issue, Right. Um, I think they have talent now. I think that offense can still win with some minor tweaks. I don't think they need to totally overhaul it. Yeah, it is interesting. And that offense that you're talking about, that they don't need to totally overhaul. It certainly has a lot more overlap with Alabama's offense than it does with the Shanahan tree. Right. And I look at their offensive line and we just talked about Trent Brown and Michael Wenu for a good five minutes there. Those guys in an outside zone system, you're kind of wasting their best abilities, right? Their best ability is their power and their sheer strength and their ability to move people off the line of scrimmage. And there are certainly elements to the zone system that involve those types of things. But you want those guys going downhill off the ball, right? You don't want to ask Mike Onwenu at 340 pounds to be running towards the sideline. Like, that's not his ideal fit. So if they're going to go in that direction, you look at – some of these other offenses that do that, uh, McVeigh, 
at Shanahan, you know, even Arthur Smith in Atlanta, like they're drafting lean athletic linemen like Cole Strange, right? Like that's the fit right. in that zone scheme. So if they're going to go in that direction completely, then I-, I think that they have some overhauling to do still with the offensive line to fully be Shanahan-esque. Now, I think that some of their receivers have that ability. I think Johnny Smith and that role of that pass catcher, you know, yards after catch Debo Samuel type vein. It, that is intriguing. Like, I think that that could work out well for a guy like Johnny to be that type of player and, and have that kind of be a combination of Kyle Juszczyk and, and Debo, right? That sort of idea with his role, I think would work out really well for Johnny. Uh, but I don't know how much it would work out for some of those linemen. That's the bigger concern that I have with it is Trent and on Wenu. You know, I, I would even throw a guy like David Andrews, who spent his entire career in a gap scheme going now to a zone scheme. I think he's a little bit more athletic than those two. Uh, so he might have that ability to do that. Or I guess not athletics, the wrong word, because Trent's a ridiculous athlete. But you know what I mean? Uh, a little bit faster uh, maybe than, than he is. But I, I think it's just I, I'm not buying the Shanahan thing. Like, I know we saw a lot of it out on Monday, but more I think about it, it just it just doesn't seem to make sense with the personnel that they have. And maybe they are just thinking about it. Like we're going to do it a little bit more than we've done it in the past and not completely overhaul it to that system. But that system is a, you mentioned it, it's not a lot of personnel groupings and it's something that is works over the period of time, right? Like you keep running it, you keep running outside zone, you run it, you run it, you run it. And then you bootleg, right? That's the whole idea of the scheme. If you're not doing it, as a full-time thing, then it doesn't necessarily have the same effect as if you're doing it the way that Shanahan and McVeigh and that whole tree does it. So we'll see what happens with this scheme. Uh, maybe we go out there on Tuesday and they're running power down downhill again, right? And, and it was just a one practice thing that they decided to work on some of those things. But it was interesting that they went in that direction so early on because now's the time of year where you lay that foundation. So if they're laying the foundation of zone, then they're going to be zone. Uh, let's move over to the defensive side of the ball. Talk about another rookie here with Marcus Jones. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about him because he was also one of those guys that was more of a spectator among the rookie class. But what are your expectations of his role this year? I don't see, and this is no slight on Marcus Jones, but you have Jonathan Jones, you have Miles Bryant. I think Sean Wade's somebody that they think can maybe play the nickel role. Uh, there's a lot of veterans ahead of him on the slot corner nickel depth chart that he's going to have to leapfrog to be able to, he's not going to play on the outside. Like at his size, he's not playing outside corner. So unless there's a bunch of injuries, which we hope there isn't, unless he can pass a guy like miles Bryant and maybe be Jonathan Jones's backup and, and serve as a sixth defensive back at times, maybe that's his way onto the field is really beating out miles Bryant versus beating out John Jones is probably a little bit too lofty. Is that kind of where your head's at too with Marcus Jones at this point? I think that returner is probably where we're going to see him the most. I'd agree with all that. Yeah, I I think he's here ultimately to replace Jonathan Jones as the starting slot corner. I think his upside's much higher than Miles Bryant. They're probably on par right now. But Miles Bryant's entering what year three, year four? Marcus Jones in his first year, he's going to grow tremendously. I I do think he's mainly a returner this year. Maybe situationally uh, against. You know, the Dolphins could be those could be games where where he plays a big role where they have multiple speedy slot receivers where they're going to run a lot of slot concepts. But, yeah, for the most part, I think he's a returner this year. And then Jonathan Jones, 
there's not a lot of reason right now for them to resign him with some of the other slot corners they have on the roster. I think they move on from him and he's the favorite to take that role next year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I think that the one thing that you could look at, like I said, for Marcus Jones is potentially passing miles Bryant as the backup nickel. I, I think that that might be yeah. a path for him. And you hope that Jonathan Jones stays healthy the whole year. But like you said, when they play Miami and you have Waddle and you have Hill out there, you know, maybe that's a, a, a game in particular, a game plan where Marcus Jones can be more involved, right. And get his speed and get his ability to cover slots on the, uh, on the field there. All right. Uh, also corners here, another rookie corner in this conversation. Do we see a world where Malcolm Butler and Jack Jones are your starting outside corners? I think you can take Malcolm Butler's name and you could put Jalen Mills there. You could put Terrence Mitchell there. Like basically it's, a veteran corner paired with Jack, right? Like does Jack Jones have that ability to start as a rookie? I think is a better way uh, of phrasing this. That would mean. Well, no, I think this season. is, I, I read this as, is Jalen Mills going to be fully a corner? Is he going to be able to play that more high okay. defensive back role? Yeah. I, that's, that too. that's an ideal situation to me is he's on the field a lot, 80, 90% of the time, but he's always doing something different in Mills. I, I, I do think there's a chance Jones has to start. I think ultimately what it's going to come down to, and again, we're very early on in the process, but I think instead of having the, the starting two corners and then the third rotational player, right, you know, Gilmore and Jackson and then Jason McCourty, right. I think you're going to see three guys probably rotate through. I think you're going to see Malcolm Butler, Jalen Mills, and Jack Jones all rotate through those two spots equally, and then Jalen Mills gets some more run probably at safety right when he's yeah. not in one of those two corner roles. That's how I see it going. That's how I would do it. If I was them, I do think Jack Jones is going to contribute. I think it is telling that when a lot of the rookies kind of sat back on the first day of OTAs, he was very involved and yeah. he has the pedigree, even though he was a fourth round pick, he has the pedigree of a guy who can come in and contribute right away at the NFL level. I don't know if he's like a 90% snap guy, but 65, 70%. That's kind of the range where they need him to be. I don't think that's totally unrealistic. So I do think there's a chance Jack Jones plays a significant role at cornerback rotation. I don't know if there's going to be a truly defined CB1 and CB2 this year. I think it's going to be three or maybe even four guys. Terrence Mitchell has a strong camp who all rotate in that spot. But I do think these two guys factor in. Yeah, roll with the hot hand at that position, yeah. I think, is going to be something that they might go with as well. I, I agree with you with Jack Jones, and I, honestly, I think this would be such a massive development for the Patriots' defense. If Jack Jones is a hit, if that's a, if that's a slam-dunk pick in the fourth round, and, and quite frankly, if he plays over 50% of the snaps as a rookie, as a fourth-round pick, that's a slam-dunk pick to get a, a guy that's basically a full-time contributor in the fourth round as a rookie is a great pick by the Patriots. If that ends up happening, it really does change a lot of how I feel about this defense overall. If they have a really good player in Jack Jones, then their secondary looks a whole lot different on paper than what it is now where they have to rely on the Butlers and Mitchells and Millses of the world to play corner. If Jack Jones is able to pop, then I think that he's somebody that's got some real upside. You know, he, he can be somebody that could potentially develop into a number one corner someday. And those guys, Butler, Mills, Mitchell, like they, they've, they've either had their time or they're never going to get there. Right. Like there's no, those guys are not right. number one corners anymore uh, or are never going to be. I think a guy like Jack Jones has that potential. And if he's already on the field as a rookie, then that means that he's really uh, developing nicely and, and coming into his own there really quickly. And that's, uh, I think it'd be something that I, I 
would be very hopeful for if I was a Patriots fan that they found that good of a player in the fourth round and Jack Jones. It wouldn't be the first time that they found a really good quarter in the fourth round. I, I think Asante Samuel is a fourth round pick. If no, I he was correctly. higher, wasn't he? No, I think he's a Actually, fourth you might pick. be right. Hang on, let me pull it up. I'm surprised. I looked it up because I was looking up, you know, the guys they let walk and all that kind of stuff at that position over the offseason with JC. And I'm I'm like 90% sure that Asante was a actually hang on here. Not just a fourth round pick. I think where, where is his uh, Wikipedia page here? Where, where is he here? Jack Jones, American football, 1997. Uh, yeah. Asante Samuel, 120th overall pick Jack Jones, 121st. There you go. So right there, there yeah. you go. Yeah, Who did so, I think was a sec was Ellis Hobbs a second round pick? Maybe, maybe Ellis Hobbs. One of those guys was a second round pick. Ellis Hobbs was a third round pick. So there you have it, Asante Samuel, uh, Jack Jones, the next Asante Samuel. Heard it here first, right? That, that's go. where we're going with. All right, I, good question here about UDFA's uh, from Ashley, who always comes and listens to us. So we appreciate that. Uh, UDFA's. Who stood out to you at practice? I know one guy stood out to us at practice just because of his sheer size, but any of the other guys uh, do anything that made you, you know, get excited a little bit? Well, I'll just, I'll just say first, because I've seen this name in the chat a couple times. Uh, Devin Hafford was somebody I'd hoped would stand out. He was actually released last week. Yeah. So he's no longer on the team. Um, yeah. So if you want to, if, if you want to save talking about LeBron Ray, I mean, the UDFAs were kind of like the rest of the rookies. They didn't do a ton. I so I guess Jake Julian because I got to see him for the first time and the and the ball comes off his foot real weird and the, and it's going to be fun to watch guys try to field those punts. Yeah, you know I'm trying to see, think of who else there is. There's you know a bunch of linemen. Yeah, Schooler um, was interesting. He was working out with a lot of the special teams guys, right? Like he was like with the special that special teams yeah. group that works out together. Schooler I think has a chance time. to make the team, but like we didn't really see him do anything. No, you know? they did some special team stuff, but it was more walkthrough, right? It wasn't like right. they were actually out there covering kicks. But I, I think that they do see him as – I think you've mentioned like Nate Ebner in the past as yeah. maybe the top. Like I think that Nate Ebner, like, Brandon King, that kind of role. Yeah, I think they're looking at him as one of those types of guys. And look, uh, that role, as much as it might drive some people nuts, no more Brandon Bolden, no more Brandon King. Uh, Nate Ebner moved on a couple years ago. They – could be developing somebody like a schooler and hope that they can find a guy like schooler that develops into the next Brandon King and Nate Ebner and Brandon Bolden. Right. right? I mean, that, that might be the hope there. You don't get to complain that they invest too much in special teams and then complain that the special teams aren't good enough. Like they were last year. It's one or the other. And the special teams weren't good enough last year. They need to restock those positions. So guys like schooler, I think are going to have a shot to make this team. Um, yeah. So I, I, I guess Schooler or Julian, it's really LeBron Ray. I think LeBron Ray is the best player in the, in that group. Tremendous size, tremendous talent. It's just a matter of him staying healthy. That's all it comes down to. And yeah. there's no way to predict that. There's no way to know. It's, it's not even one of those things where you can say, oh, well, you know, like we did with Hunter Henry last year. And I know he wasn't a rookie, but he's coming into a much better medical staff. Alabama's got an outstanding medical staff. Yeah. So – you just hope he stays healthy, but if he does, he's gonna he's gonna be a player. He's gonna be a guy who makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, he was a big big dude. That's and that's what you like to see with defensive linemen, right? You don't want to come away from a practice and be like, oh, that defensive lineman was kind of smaller than I thought he would be, right? Like that's not no. It said no one ever, right? Like that's never what you want right. to hear with D linemen or offensive linemen. I think this is a really good question here 
from Zach that I'm sure a lot of people think when they turn on a sports radio or, you know, listen to Patriots content and hear us, uh, you know, concerned about the play caller role. Uh, when Charlie Weiss left after the 2004 season, was there as much panic about Josh McDaniels and the next regime of offensive coordinators or the offensive coaching staff in general as there is now, and shouldn't Joe Judge and Matt Patricia get the benefit of the doubt just like McDaniels did back then? So I'll say this. I 110% remember when Charlie Weiss and Romeo Cornell were moving on after their 4 that a lot of people thought that was the Patriots dynasty was over, right? Like the coaching staff yeah. was moving on, players were getting older, and it really did feel like that was it. And as competitive as they were and as many Super Bowls as they made two more, they did go 10 years without winning another Super Bowl, right? So in some ways it did end up playing out that way more or less. Now, the other thing I would say is on those staffs, you had Ivan Fears as the running backs coach. You had Dante Scarnecchi as the offensive line coach. So you had guys at the other positions that were longtime NFL position coaches and two legends quite frankly right. in New England and I think Chad O'Shea wasn't Chad O'Shea the wide receivers coach that whole time he, he might have been I, I I he I think he might have come in a couple of years later but he might have been. had a wide receivers coach I can't remember who it was but they had a wide receivers coach then too who was notable I'm looking it up he might have also been in the oh, organization. it was it was Brian Dayball oh okay so there you go so that staff was still loaded when McDaniels had to take over play calling right I mean you're talking about Scar fears Dable who's now a head coach and one of the best offensive minds in football and McDaniels that was a low-key ridiculously good staff even without Charlie Weiss so I think that's the concern and I know Andrew Callahan wrote about Ross Douglas this week and kind of talking about how his rise and his uh, really quick rise in the Patriots organization so maybe Douglas Troy Brown Nick Cayley like maybe we can get a little bit more jazzed up about those guys being the Dables and, and the McDanielses of the Patriots staff. But I think the biggest thing that you're concerned about is the fact that they don't have the, let's just call it the foundation that those, that team did back then on the offensive side of the football compared to now. So I think back then we maybe there was maybe some overreaction about Charlie Weiss leaving and Romeo Cornell leaving, but now I feel like it's the, the, it's very much justified in my opinion. And the other thing I would say is Brady had won three Super Bowls already and they were turning the keys over not only to Josh McDaniels, but they were also turning the keys over to Brady in what that was year six or year five of Tom Brady's career. Year you know, four as a starter, yeah. five as a starter. This is Max second season as the Patriots quarterback. So it's just such a different situation in my mind that simply just giving them the better, the fit, fit of the doubt because they're, you know, they're new and they're, uh, they're proven till they're unproven or whatever you want to talk, you know, whatever way you want to phrase it, I, I think is being a little bit too lenient on this situation, honestly. I, I, I think some of it too, and maybe this is, you know, maybe I'm being obtuse looking at it this way. There, there really couldn't be that level of panic because it was the team was covered so differently. There was no social media, right? Yeah, that's true. I think too. part yeah. of where this comes from is you need content 24-7. You know, covering the team, I don't want to say back then because it makes me sound old as hell, but like you had your daily column. It was the newspaper, right? You had your daily column. I don't think, you know, without regular access to the internet, I don't know that fans were as 
involved in what was going on in terms of the depth of the coaching staff on a day-to-day thing. You know, maybe you had some sports radio callers talking about it, but we we didn't talk about the team the same way than we do now in yeah. sports. It's not a Patriots thing. That's like every, yeah. not just sports, everything across the world. We don't talk right. about things in, in 2022, the same way we did in 2005. So had there been social media back then, maybe it would have been more focused on. I think that it's just tough when we talk about the actual coverage of it, as opposed to the situation itself, it's apples. It's different eras, right? You know, yeah, totally. how good would, how good would auto Graham be in today's NFL? You put yeah. Bethel Johnson back in 1965, he probably would have won MVP. You, you know what I'm saying? So the one interesting thing though, I will, I will bring up here. I went back, I'm going back and looking at the staffs to kind of see yeah, what the lead up was. Cause when we have this conversation about the Patriots coaching staff and maybe shortcomings on it, Evan, right. It's not just about 2022. It's about what led up to this and the talent drain. That's the phrase a lot of people like to use leading into last year on the defensive side of the ball. You want to go through the staffs real quick here. Can we go through the staffs real quick before uh, it's the middle of May. We can go through whatever you want to go through (laughs) leading up to that time. So here's, here's the staff as it existed in, in 2001. Yeah. Um, Hang on. I, I need the page to reload here real quick. And there it is. It's back. All right. So you had head coach, Bill Belichick. They actually had an assistant head coach, which was Dante Skarnecki, who was also the offensive line coach. Bizarre. The offensive Dante, coordinator. Dante Skarnecki got demoted at some point along the line is what that means. Yeah, I can actually tell you exactly when that happened. It happened in 20. Oh, no, when he retired. When he So he, he was still technically the assistant head coach up until 2013. He then retired <laughs> and he came back because the NFL doesn't really do assistant head coaches anymore. That's not. I don't think there's anybody left with that title. There's some, league, titles, right? there's some guys that have associate head coach titles. I can't remember off the top of associate my head. Associate and assistant is very different. So I do know that Dan Campbell, I believe, was either the assistant or the associate head coach in New Orleans. That was his title before he became the head coach of the Lions. So it, it does okay. happen a little bit. Anyway, uh, Scar was the offensive line coach. Weiss was the quarterback's coach. You know what position he coached? Well, he was the OC, and we talk about this a lot, that the OC has to coach certain positions. Do you remember what position he coached? It wasn't quarterbacks, I'm It was not quarterbacks. It was running backs. Okay. Ivan Fears was the wide receivers coach. They did not have a tight ends coach. Jeff Davidson was the assistant offensive line coach, and Dick Rabine is listed as the quarterback's coach. He obviously passed away that summer leading up to the season. So maybe Weiss doubled up on that. You know, they never replaced yeah. Dick Rabine. Um, so we go to the next season. Ivan Fears moves to running backs. Charlie Weiss is now the OC and quarterbacks coach in 2002. Brian Dable is the wide receivers coach. And Nick Casario is an offensive coaching assistant in 02. Uh, go ahead another year to 03. They drop Weiss from the quarterbacks coach role. And again, you have a young Tom Brady. Josh Huffnagel is the quarterbacks coach. Sure. And then everything else is is still the same again. Going on to 2004, this is the last year of the setup. Charlie Weiss is the OC. Josh McDaniels is the quarterbacks coach. Uh, and they add, they make Jeff Davidson the tight ends coach in addition to uh, assistant offensive line. The other offensive line assistant that's brought in in 2004 is Matt Patricia. And then in 2005, after all those guys leave and they kind of restructure it, there's no OC. Eric Mangini becomes the DC. Josh McDaniels is your quarterback's coach. It's Fears at running backs, Dable at wide receivers. Pete Manjorian is the tight ends coach. And Matt Patricia is your second offensive line coach behind Dante Scarnecchia. 
So you saw some of those guys kind of trickle in there, right? As that thing yeah. went on. I don't know. I just, I just find it interesting to go back and looking at that compared to what it is now. I don't know if you have any takeaways from me reading that all out. I think the, the, the most that, interesting but. thing is, is to me, is that you start talking about some of these younger coaches that they had back then. And to the, the question's point, Matt Patricia wasn't Matt Patricia until he was Matt Patricia, right? Like he, right. he was once upon a time, the Tyler Hughes of the coaching staff back in the third offensive line coach, right? Like he was once upon a time, the Ross Douglas of the offensive line coach room, right? Like that, what, these all guys do all come from somewhere. And I think that when we do these exercises, that's the important thing to remember. And I think the big thing that people always point out with Josh McDaniels is that he was on the defensive side of the ball first. And then he moved right. over to offense, quarterbacks, coach, then becomes offensive play caller, and then eventually becomes the offensive coordinator. So in a lot of ways, you do have to remember that just like player development, there's coaching development, right? And these guys do get better and better, and they rise up the ranks. And if we asked somebody back in 2004, who's Matt Patricia, they would all say, who the heck is Matt Patricia? Right. Like, I have no idea who that guy is. Like, I couldn't point him out to you in, in a grocery store in a lineup, whatever you want to say. Now we know exactly who Matt Patricia is. So there right. is some developmental things that you do have to keep in mind. I just think, again, uh, my bigger concern with it is not necessarily about the young talent that they have. It's more about the, the veteran guys now, like Matt Patricia being the offensive line coach in 2022 versus Dante Scarnecchia being the offensive line coach in 2005 is a much different animal, right? Like that's a much different yeah. situation to me. So I think that that's the bigger concern that I have when I look at the two kind of yin and yangs here that we're presenting is more the fact that some of these other positions are not, are being coached by guys that are maybe in a little bit over their heads and it's not the stable veterans of Dante Scarnecchia and Ivan fears and some of these other coaches that have been around the block, uh, Ross Douglas, Nick Cayley, Troy Brown, like Tyler Hughes, like those guys might develop into the next McDaniels is the next Dables and the next Patricia's and the next judges. Like we don't know, but it's more about the veteran coaches that they're trusting to coach them here and now. I think is why people are so concerned compared to back then. But again, I'll, I'll never forget that picture of Belichick, Cornell, and Weiss getting the Gatorade yeah. dumped on them. That was supposed to be like an iconic moment of like an end of an era, right? Because right. Weiss was going to Notre Dame. Cornell was going to coach the Browns, right? I, I think it was the Browns. Was the Browns or Kansas City? I think it was the Browns, yeah. Yeah, and that was supposed to be it. And now we're sitting here 20 years later and Bill Belichick's the coach and they have six Super Bowls and, you know, the rest is history. So we'll see. It's I don't think that the media, I guess the, the final point I'll make on it, Alex, you can disagree well, with me if you want, is I don't think yeah. the media is making a too big a deal out of this. Like, I think this is a legitimate concern uh, about the team moving forward. Yes, the around the news, around the clock, 24-7 news cycle is contributing to this the horse being beaten to death way too much. Right. Maybe. And us talking about it way too much, but I don't think that the concern level is more than it should be. I, I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. I, I think it's being mischaracterized. I do think there's inherent issues with the coaching staff. Again, going back beyond 2022, I don't think 
the way they're being put out there is necessarily the biggest issue. Like, so here's another thing. Cause I, I, I kept clicking forward on this coaching staff and I kept looking right. And cause then you had another turnover like three or four years later, right? McDaniels left Dean P's left. He had come in as the defensive coordinator and you start seeing these names as you go through the years, right? From five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, where there's a guy named Bill O'Brien who shows up as an offensive assistant. And then two years later, he's the wide receivers coach. And suddenly he's the quarterback's coach, right? Um, yeah. We, we talked about Matt Patricia, where he's a he's an offensive assistant. Then he's the assistant offensive line coach. Then he's the assistant linebackers coach. Then he's a linebackers coach. Then he's a defense coordinator. And I'm even now on to that next stage where you had Bill O'Brien and Matt Patricia. And I, I keep clicking forward again in 2010. All of a sudden, this pops up at the very bottom, Evan, of the, the coaching staff. Offensive slash special teams assistant. This coach had no involvement on defense. He goes by the name of Brian Flores. Right. Obviously, you know, and so that's in 2010. And then he continues to move up and up and up. That to me is the issue. It's not necessarily that, oh, Bill doesn't want to have assistant coaches because he's snubbing the media and he hates titles and he wants all the credit. Like that is a narrative. The issue to me is they did such a good job pipelining coaches over the last 20 years. And when one guy left, the next guy was here. And it feels like for whatever reason, and we could probably debate there's four or five reasons that this might be true. It's probably a combination of multiple things. That next guy wasn't here this time when everybody left. We thought it might be Nick Cayley on offense. It probably should be Gerard Mayo on defense. Obviously that at least at this point doesn't appear to be fully the case, but the pipeline ran dry. And that to me is the bigger issue, right? Yeah. I, I, where they're at now is where they're at. But to me, it's either, or, or I, let me rephrase that. Cause now I'm mischaracterizing it. Not necessarily that the pipeline ran dry. They turned away from the pipeline, right? They brought back Matt Patricia. Uh, they brought back Joe judge. They've kind of stalled out Gerard Mayo. They've stalled out Nick Cayley. They stalled out Troy Brown. The way it was structured in the past, those guys would have just moved up. And maybe it's a case of, well, those guys weren't ready last year. And that's why Matt Patricia's here, right? Because he needed to bridge the gap and now he's just here. You're not going to fire him. Right. But that to me is the real conversation. Did the pipeline dry up or not? And did they turn away from the pipeline in order to bring back former coaches? That's the conversation. Right. Not, oh, well, you know, the, the players don't know who's calling plays, so they're going to go 5-12 and 12 this year because they haven't publicly named an offense coordinator. That's not the conversation. That's hot take nonsense. To me, it's about the pipeline. Yeah, and, and I think you look at Nick Saban at Alabama, another defensive-minded head coach that runs yeah. that side of the ball like Bill runs the defense here. And one of the things that Alabama has gone through is coordinator turnover on offense, right? Because their offensive coordinators keep on getting head coaching jobs. And this is one of the reasons when we talk about, do you have to make a hire that's an offensive coach? Well, one of the big reasons why teams are gravitating towards the offensive coaches is because all the great offensive minds in the NFL are becoming head coaches. So if you don't have one of those guys, then your guy is going on to be a head coach someplace else, like Josh McDaniels just did to Bill Belichick. So another I wouldn't call it a concern, but I, I wonder if Belichick looks at Nick Saban and he says, okay, well, he went from Lane Kiffin to Sarkeesian, now to Bill O'Brien. Like, is, is Belichick going to do the same thing, right? Where every two years right. it's a new offensive coordinator 
And is that really the best thing for Mac Jones? Because I think the theory has also been thrown out there that the Patriots could potentially just be keeping the seat warm for Bill O'Brien. And this is kind of a bridge year coaching wise to yeah. just get themselves to Bill O'Brien. The problem with that strategy, I, I, I would be all on board with Bill O'Brien, but if Bill O'Brien coordinates the Patriots for a year or two and he does it well, then he's going to move on for a head coaching job in two years. Right? So at what point do you have some stability at that spot? And when you talk about the pipeline, that's how the Patriots were able to find stability is because they were bringing up their own guys. Right. And these guys were unproven, but not unproven to them. So Josh McDaniels ends up being the offensive coordinator for 13 seasons with the Patriots because he's their guy. Right. And I, I know he left in the middle there, but he came back. So it just, when you talk about pipelines and, and you worry about that coaching tree running dry, I think that's the biggest concern that you have with it is for Mac in particular, but the offense as a whole, that you're just going to keep recycling offensive coordinators every two years like Alabama does. The difference with Alabama is they also are recycling players every two to four years, right? So their, their quarterback is not the same every year to year because it's a college right. program versus a pro program. So at some point, you just want to see some consistency, some stability. Now, maybe Bill Belichick looks at it and says, well, nobody is going to hire Joe Judge or Matt Patricia to be a head coach ever again. So if either one of those guys is able to take on the coordinator role and actually do a good job at it, I probably can have him for the rest of my coaching tenure in the in the NFL until I retire because – is anybody giving Joe Judge another shot to be a head coach? Like, probably not. So maybe that's the way he's looking at it. I don't know. Maybe. But it just – it feels to me like the the continuity might not be there. And I, I think that that is also a little bit of a concern as well. That's fair. I could see that. All right. Boston Sports Minute, I think it's time. Yep. As this loads, I got to get the question off the screen. I got to get the Boston Sports Minute backer. Boston Sports Minute, Alex, uh, the Celtics – Win a big game five. This That was a championship caliber second half from the Celtics. Al Horford and Derek White keep them alive in the first half. Uh, basically save the season in some ways, I think, in that first half by keeping that a five-point game. And then Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown go full superstar mode in the second half, put the team on their back. They were up to, what, 25-point lead at one point there in the in the fourth quarter? Something or 20 like that, point yeah. Lead. It was it was a big lead there for the Celtics in the fourth. It's not over yet. I know everybody's talking about you know thirteen and eighteen and some of the other three two leads that they've had in the past in the conference finals. But LeBron James is not walking through that door for Miami this time around, right? So this is, seems feels a little bit different because the opponent is not as dangerous as those Heat teams and that Cavs team was. I mean, right now it's all about conditioning. Right. This is Bill Belichick showing his players footage of this series when they're asking why they're running the hill, Yeah, you know, late in the year, playing every other day. These teams are absolutely gassed right now. And even though they played better, I almost want to say the Celtics stole that game just because it doesn't feel like either team should have won that game. Right. It really feels like even when they were up 20, it it still felt close just because that game was so weird. Right. And, and, And both teams just seemed on the verge of a collapse. So I think they got to close out in game six. I really do. Uh, I, you know, you don't want to go back to Miami. I think any more games you got to extend your, your Marcus smarts being held together by, you know, the, the least little bit right now, Robert Williams yeah. as well. You want to give those guys time to rest up. 
you don't want to ask them to play any unnecessary games. You don't want to have to go back to Miami, any of that. I will say that you touched on it there. Al Horford, sneaky. If we're going to take the term MVP, most valuable player at its value, I know that Al Horford's been the Celtics' best player in the playoffs. I think there's a real argument he's been their most valuable player. And I talked about this on the last show. What he's given them 37 minutes a night at age 35, the staple of consistency. He had 16 points last night, three blocks. I think he had seven rebounds, didn't turn the ball over once, looked great on defense. He was excellent. This, this is what the Celtics teams haven't had in recent years. You know, I think we've talked a lot about the growth of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but they've both had their big moments in the playoffs. The team still hasn't been able to get over the hump. You were relying on Ennis Cantor, Daniel Tice, Demir Johnson, uh, you know, all these guys in the paint who just, just couldn't cut it. And I, you know, Al Horford was, was here for some of these teams to be fair, but I think he's, he's playing the game a, a much different way now, a way that they really need him to do it. Um, I think, you know, he's been such a huge boost for them right now that if they win this series and if they go on to win the title, we need to have a real talk about Al Horford because he's going to be a central reason why they do that. Every single championship team, and obviously we know so much about championships, pat on the back there for Boston, that every single championship team that we've seen over the last two decades has an Al Horford, who's not necessarily the best player on the team, but is just the glue guy and the guy that that probably, no disrespect to Al Horford, but is almost punching above his weight at times in these last few series, right? Going toe-to-toe with guys like Bam and Giannis who are like 10 years younger than he is and are supposed to be these all-star superstar players. And he's just going toe-to-toe with those two uh, back and forth. It's really the series, I think, flipped for the Celtics in uh, the last two games when Al Horford and Robert Williams neutralized Bam at a bio in the middle of the court. That is really where I think it became a Celtics series because eventually with Bam not being able to get those easy baskets underneath, the three-point shooters for Miami have run dry completely. I think I saw that stat that their guards, their starting guards are like one for 28 in the last two games or something stupid like that. So Jimmy Butler is not an outside shooter. That's not really his game. And I think he's dealing with something pretty significant in that knee contusion as well. And then Struess and uh, really the only guy that has been shooting well for them is uh, what's the other guard's name? Of course I'm blanking on Duncan Robinson, Jeff Howe. No, not Duncan Robinson, but uh, oh, Vincent, I'll, Gabe Vincent, yeah, Gabe Vincent. Thank yeah, you. he's been Gabe good. Vincent. He's been very good in this. Yeah, season. he's been the one guy that's been kind of scary. And you also add in there that Tyler Hero has been injured and, and hasn't played in two games. That being able to figure out Bam and and how to slow down Bam with the two big guys that has really uh, flipped the series for the Celtics because I was at Game Three when the Heat blew out the Celtics and at uh, on the road and at the Garden, and Bam was the best player on the court. Games yep. four and five, Ben's been almost invisible. Well, and I think that's been a huge flip for the Celtics. It's Robert Williams, right? Yeah. It's, it's Robert Williams making the difference. The The other thing I'll add, I, I think when you talk about the guards and the three-point shooting, Celtics haven't shot well either of the last two games. I know Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown kind of got it going in the second half last night, but yeah. you see every both teams, everything is off the front of the rim. That's tired legs. That's what that yeah. is. They just can't get enough on the shot because they're so gassed. And there's a stat last night in the third quarter – this wasn't for the whole third quarter. I think this came up with about four minutes to go in the third. And uh, I didn't keep track of it after this, but I think the point is, is enough to be made. The they'd each made one three pointer to that point late in the third quarter, both teams made one three pointer in the quarter. The difference was the Celtics were one for two. Miami was one for 12. 
Yeah. And what that tells me is I think the Celtics kind of, I, I think in game four, and especially at halftime last night, it's clicked for the Celtics that this series has changed and the way they need to play basketball has changed that. And, and I know you were tweeting about the, the, the scheduling and what a mess it is and all of that. And I like to you're not, about the NBA. you're not I mean, wrong, but it, it is what it is. It's not going to change. And I think the Celtics yeah. kind of had a wake up moment of this is what it is. And we need to adjust to the conditions. I don't think Miami, you know, maybe they had it late in that game after it was already over, but Miami, you know, heading into the fourth quarter of last night, at least had not had that revelation. They were still trying to play like they've played all series. But when Jimmy Butler's on a bad knee, Max Struss, it's a lower body. I don't remember exactly what it is with him, but like these guys just can't get enough on the shot. Yeah, they can't. They're too gassed. And I think the Celtics have realized that and they've adjusted their game accordingly. That feels like a big difference. Somebody in the chat says seems like coaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of credit to Ime Udoka for that. And that's something, by the way, previous iterations of the Celtics, even the Celtics early this year, and it, it came with them being a young team. They didn't adjust. They didn't want to adjust. They wanted to play the game their way. And there wasn't much open-mindedness to, to, to just to finding other avenues to win games. And they've done that tremendously throughout these playoffs. They, you know, after game four, Ime Udoka. And I think it, who was the other one? I think it was Derek white. Uh, one of the players talked about winning ugly and yeah. what it means to be able to win ugly. And they've really embraced that. And I think that's the difference. The last two games, they shot 28% from, from three in game four. They'd only won a handful of such games this year. They're well under 500 when shooting under 30% from three, they figured out a way to win that game last night, just no legs, tired legs, can't get a shot to go. They figured out a way to win that game. They're adjusting. They're winning ugly. That is a huge difference. All the credit in the world to Ime Udoka for that. I said before, Al Horford's going to be a big part if, you know, they win this series and they go on to win the whole thing. The biggest thing is they figured out a way to adjust. They figured out a way to win without playing their brand of basketball. We talked about this with the Patriots last year, Evan. Yeah. Remember, I'd say this every week. The most encouraging thing about the win is they won it a different way. And that's the difference between a good team and a great team. A good team can win a game. A great team can win a game without playing to their strengths. The Celtics are now winning games without playing to their strengths. That, to me, is huge. It really is kudos to Ime Aduka because last two series, Mike Budenholzer, Eric Spostra, like, say what you want about it was Steve Nash with the Brooklyn Nets, right? Like, that's different. Oh, he's not right? a good coach. Yeah, but, yeah, the last two have been established head coaches in this league. Like, really, really good head coaches. Like, Spolstra might be a Hall of Famer head coach. He's got three titles, right, in, in the league. And I know – Well, he had LeBron for, for a couple of those two. We didn't I know, LeBron, but he's chat, been a really, yeah. really – he's a really good head coach, Spolstra. A lot of people uh, really – respect the heck out of that guy and next series you have to go up against steve kerr if they make it that far right so he's gonna have to go through three really good head coaches for a title so far he's uh one and a half right he's he's halfway there or, or a little bit more than halfway there i guess he's 75 percent of the way there uh, against uh eric Spoelstra. so i think coming into this series it was legitimate to be concerned and especially with the buck series too with Bo uh, budenholzer did they have the coaching advantage or not right i, I think that was a right. legitimate uh, concern going into it and I think so far Ime has coached his butt off and and, and they've definitely been able to have a, a, an advantage or at least pull even uh, with the coaching situation last thing I'll say Celtics are going to the NBA finals heard it here first I they're not choking it away this lead they're winning game six at home they're going to the NBA finals I hate being overconfident but I am overconfident about the end of this series I see no way 
no way, no how that Miami wins twice against the Celtics over the next two games. And I'm very confident in the Celtics winning a game seven in Miami if they have to. Like, I don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility. They've already won two games in Miami. I think they can win another one if they absolutely have to. Series is over. Celtics are going to the finals. Uh, Are you as confident as I am, Alex Barth? So here's what I'd say. And a lot of them said it last night, too, and I love that they said it. Remember how we felt after game five against Milwaukee? 14-point fourth quarter collapse. That thing was over. It was over. Yeah. What the Celtics do. They went back to back. I'm glad that they can, elimination game. I'm glad they can look in the mirror though and like see how that could be Miami's mindset. Oh right? no, that's like, that's, that's what Ime Udoka brought it up. Al yeah. Horford brought it up. Jason Tatum brought it up last. I wrote about it. I wrote about them all saying that last night, 985thesportshub.com. I, I I love that they have that mentality. I love that they're keeping that mentality. I think that's key. I I, I am worried about game seven because the longer this series goes, the more unpredictable it gets. And I know that, that you know, you're sitting here thinking, well, the, and look, the, the Heat looked like a broken team last night. They looked broken. They did. They sure it's not did. It's just about how they looked. I just, even going into the series, I just don't think that he can win two in a row against Boston. I look, just don't I, think that as a team in general, they can do that. Regardless of the, the ebbs and flows and the roller coaster of the series itself, I, I just look at Miami and the way that they are constructed and the way that they play basketball and the way that they look in terms of physically injuries, that sort of thing as well. And I just don't see any way that they can win two in a row against Boston. I, I know anything's possible. Anything can happen. Yada, yada, yada. I'm taking the Celtics. So, he, and, and look, I said at the beginning, you, we did a Boston sports minute before game one. I said the Celtics yeah. lose game one, but win the series in six. That was my prediction. Nice job. What I, thank you. What I will say is the longer this series goes, the more unpredictable it gets because you you get the tired legs, you get the sloppy yeah. play. All of That's a sudden true. you're in a close game and it, it comes down to one bounce. It comes yeah. down to one guy not being able to fully die for a loose ball. The Celtics should close this thing up in game six. I'm just worried with how rigorous the schedule is. You get to game seven, it's essentially going to be 10 guys crawling around the court. I don't think talent has anything to do with it at that point. You know, I don't think strategy has anything to do with it. I think if this goes seven games, it's a coin flip. It's truly a coin flip. It comes down to luck. I kind of feel that way about game six, too, if we're being honest. After seeing how gas both teams looked last night. But I think the Celtics get that adrenaline kick of playing at home, a chance to clinch a spot in the finals, all of that. I like the Celtics in game six. I, if they lose game six, I'm going to be worried. If they lose game six, I'm going to be very worried. I don't think they will. I'm picking them in game six. But if they lose game six, I'm going to be very worried because I think I love weird games. Everybody knows me, the whole sickos thing, right? In football season, we, whatever that Monday night, whatever week that Monday night game was against the Bills, even if that hadn't been the Patriots, would be a top five all time football game for me. That game was straight up ludicrous. I think we're in for some of these games here the next couple of nights. And that's what worries me. But I do still like the Celtics in game six. Celtics in six. I'm taking Boston. I think they're winning tomorrow night. And I think the series is over. I also will say this too. I I know that players have said they're kind of approaching it as a game seven in game six because it is at home and they really should end this tomorrow night. I I also think just not that they should be looking at it this way, but I can look at it this way because I'm not actually playing in the game. Right. If they're going to have any chance against Golden State, they got to wrap this thing up tomorrow night. Yes. Because they need the full amount of rest that they can possibly have. 
in order to Although, get ready for Golden State. So they need, I will add to that. need Luka tonight to go off and, and get that series to six games right. as well. Well, so I will add to that, though, and this does help the Celtics. The start date for the NBA Finals is already set. It's June 2nd. No matter how long either of these series go, it's June 2nd. So they will get, yeah. you know, the, the Warriors, you want the Warriors to play more games, but that series is going to go as long as it goes. They're going to have days off no matter what. But, yeah, the yeah. more game the Warriors play, the better. And I am going tomorrow night, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I've only lost one game in the playoffs so far, by the way, okay? So I'm actually been pretty good luck. Uh, so far in the postseason. So, yes, I did lose game three with me in attendance the other night. That stunk. But I won uh, game seven against Milwaukee. Your boy was there. All right. So I was there already for one closeout game this playoff. So I'm going tomorrow night. They're going to close it out. They're not going to ruin this for me. And I'm going to be very excited. And Alex and I are going to be back on the podcast We'll probably be able to do the podcast on Tuesday, right? Because their Celtics, regardless, will not be playing on Tuesday night. So uh, right. after uh, yeah. practice on Tuesday, uh, we will be back here on the podcast to break down what we saw at OTAs for the Patriots next week. And then we'll do a show on Thursday, Q&A edition. And I just want to say one thing before we sign off. And Alex, you don't need to comment on what happened down in Texas if you don't want to. But I do want to say uh, one thing about that because – uh, on Tuesday, we were doing the show and the news broke about what happened uh, down in Texas with the school shooting. And I think both of us tried to guide through the rest of that podcast, but like our mind was a little bit someplace else uh, with what was going on. And I, I just want to say that once I hope someday that we can look at things like mass shootings and, and gun legislation as a non-political issue. And we can kind of all come together as a country and, and recognize that legislating or advocating, I guess is the right word for it, advocating for fewer school shootings is only a good thing. Like the fact that that has to be bipartisan and has to be a Republican Democrat thing is so just beyond conception to me. And uh, I think that we absolutely need better. We need to be better. And if the Republicans can't come together with the Democrats and recognize that, and we can't all just sit here and say, you know what, it's actually better for the country if 20 children don't die when they go to school, uh, then I, I just, I'm not really sure like how you can be human and not see that side of things. So I just wanted to say that because as much as we love talking about sports as much as we love talking about the Patriots and the Celtics and all the exciting things that are happening in Boston sports, uh, that's obviously bigger than sports. And I just wanted to wrap it up there and, and not spend too much time on it, but didn't want to not address the elephant in the room, Alex. Sure. Yeah. Um, I got, you know, a number of family members who are teachers and it's something they certainly talk about a lot. The concern of all of that. Um, you know, I, I remember after, I don't even know which one it was. It wasn't Columbine, but you know, one of the ones in the early 2000s, my mom telling me like, something never happens, cover yourself in blood, lie down, act like you're dead, like hearing that at whatever it was, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Um, there's no, there's no reason for that. So I'm not going to pretend to totally understand the political spectrum of it. Um, I'm not going to, you know, suggest a bunch of policy that I don't know if it works or not, but uh, yeah. I'll just, there's no, there's no reason that, that whatever it is, however many kids it was, or, and to the teachers too, all of them, there's no reason that 20 people should be dead in a school. There's in, in, you know, this country, there's that shouldn't be a regular thing that happens. And it is. So whatever it takes to get it done, I don't think that, you know, 
again, I, I look at it as why are we opposing something that prevents 20 people from being dead in a school? Whatever that thing is, I, I'm not smart enough to know the entire answer to that question. But uh, there's a reason we we elect leaders because we believe they're smart enough to answer that question. And it's about time they start answering it. That, that's what I'd say on that. Yeah. And I, I tried my best here to tee us up to use our platform to speak out against this. And I encourage everybody to do the same. And honestly, this is one of those things too, where we vote for these people, right? Like we put these people in office, we vote for the people in Congress, we vote for the president. And if as much as it's all about, you know, I get it. It's about, you know, uh, the NRA and lobbyists and all that kind of stuff and all that, those sort of backdoor angles and things like that. This is something that we all as a country, as a population need to come together and say, demand more out of our politicians, right? Demand more out of the people we put in office and demand more out of everybody to do better than this. Cause like Alex said, uh, 20 people in a school, dead is unacceptable on every single level, regardless of if you're voting Republican or voting Democrat in November. So we got to be better than that. But I hate to end it on a somber note, um, but I'm glad we did touch on that. And Alex and I, like I said, we'll be back uh, on Tuesday to recap day two, or I guess practice number two, uh, that the media is available or open to the media uh, for the Patriots with OTA. So we'll see you guys on Tuesday and our thoughts and prayers are with the people down in Texas. Thanks for watching everybody.